I began our study of 1 Peter by drawing attention to the, the weirdness of Christianity. Christians are strange. They stand out. There's something different about them, or at least there should be, according to Peter. And throughout this study, we've seen different ways that the apostle expounded on this theme. In the second session, we looked at the ways that Christianity freed people from the, from the competitive and status-driven cultural values of their day. Being Christian liberated them from all the worries and concerns about honor and respect and, and enabled them to serve and honor one another instead. In the third session, we talked about what this actually looked like in practice in day-to-day -day relationships within a household. In the last session, we discussed how Peter helps his readers to understand what makes them distinct by reminding them that their lives are part of a distinctive story, which, once again, has the tendency to make Christians different, foreign, strange. But there is one thing that we haven't talked much about, and within the Roman world in which Peter's readers lived— it was perhaps the oddest and strangest thing about Christianity, and that is the cross. Within the Roman mindset, there was perhaps nothing more degrading or dishonorable or humiliating than crucifixion. The third century Christian theologian, Origen of Alexandria, he summarized how Romans tended to view crucifixion when he referred to it as the utterly vile death of the cross. You can understand why so many people in the ancient world were astonished and, and also repulsed when they found out that Christians worship a crucified man. In fact, one of the earliest archaeological evidences we have of Roman attitudes toward Christians, it comes in the form of a, of a crude piece of graffiti that was etched into some plaster. You can still see it to this day. It depicts a man with the head of a donkey hanging on a cross with a caption in Greek that reads, Aleximenos worships his God. Oh, we don't know who drew that picture or who Aleximenos was, but the message makes it pretty clear that the artist finds the worship of a crucified man utterly bizarre. And yet... That's what Christians did, and that's what we still do to this day. We worship a crucified man. And that is why, as the, as the historian Tom Holland has recently said, that is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity. Perhaps it should come as no surprise then that Peter concludes his letter with a reflection on how Christians, in their relations with one another, how they should model their lives after the pattern of Jesus' death. How, in other words, they should follow the way of the cross. Now, that may not be immediately obvious when you read 1 Peter chapter 5. After all, Peter never actually uses the word cross or crucifixion. 
anywhere in this chapter. But I'm going to suggest that this is exactly what he's doing. And to do so, I'm going to break up what Peter says into three separate sections focused on cross-shaped leaders, a cross-shaped community, and cross-shaped hope. Let's start with the first, cross-shaped leaders. Peter begins chapter 5 with instructions to church leaders, elders, he calls them. So I exhort the elders among you, he says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And you notice how he identified himself in that sentence? He calls himself a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, there's a, a lot we can gather from just these words. During the period of the Reformation, for instance, when Protestant leaders were contesting claims uh, in the Roman Catholic Church of papal authority, notable theologians like John Calvin and Martin Luther, they, they pointed to this verse and these words as proof of the fact that, unlike his supposed papal successors, the apostle Peter never claimed any kind of supreme authority over other elders, but instead identified himself as, as one among them, as a fellow elder. If Peter had the right of primacy, Calvin observed, he would have claimed it, and this would have been most suitable on the present occasion. But although he was an apostle, he knew that authority over his colleagues was by no means delegated to him, but that on the contrary, he was joined with the others in the sharing of the same office. Now, that's certainly an interesting observation. It's at least one thing that you could take away from Peter's words here, but I'd like to draw your attention not simply to the fact that he calls himself a fellow elder, but that he refers to himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? You might think he's just building some credibility by referring to the fact that, that he was there. He was a disciple with Jesus during the time of the crucifixion. But that's not the only thing that this word witness means. The Greek word that Peter uses is the word martus, which is where we get the word martyr. And as with the word martyr, this word refers not only to those who see something, but those who bear testimony to it through their own lives. Peter didn't just see Christ suffer on the cross. He himself has suffered. And from what Jesus told him during their conversation on the beach after his resurrection, Peter knows that he is destined to share in even more of Christ's suffering. And that's what gives him credibility to talk to these other Christian leaders. As one commentator puts it, Peter is able to instruct the elders in the way of messianic leadership because he himself bears the marks of the Messiah in his own body. His own leadership is cruciform. And you can also see this focus on the cross in the instructions he gives to the other leaders. For instance, he tells them that when they lead, they should do so not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound very similar to Christ's own ministry? To his own willingness to lay down his life for his sheep? 
Jesus bore the cross not under compulsion, but willingly. He did it not for his own gain, but for the sake of those he loved. On the cross, Jesus did not domineer over those in his charge, but set an example for them to follow. And he did so, as the book of Hebrews tells us, in faith. It was for the joy set before him. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 that Christ endured the cross, despised its shame, and was then seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. And notice how similar that mindset is to the one that Peter commends to his fellow elders when he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's something different, something distinctive about Christian leadership. The world encourages us to seek positions of authority for our own good because they're a means of of honor or influence or power. But Peter says that church leaders shouldn't follow that pattern. They shouldn't follow the way of the world, but rather the way of the cross, giving their life for the good of those under their care and trusting God to be the one who rewards them. Likewise, he says in verse 5, those who follow should also model themselves after the pattern of the cross. Peter's instruction to those who follow, to the younger members of the church, as he calls them, it sounds very similar to what he said earlier to wives and servants. Be subject to the elders, he says. That sounds pretty straightforward, but doesn't mean it's easy. If anything, that, that simple little instruction forces us to move this idea of following the way of the cross from the realm of the abstract to the realm of our concrete, everyday experience, which is exactly what we should do. For as Douglas Herring says, the practice of the cross is always this concrete. It is always learning to be subordinate to the specific person with whom I have to do in a particular relationship. Peter's admonitions to submit, to subject ourselves to other people, helps us to see what being a cross-shaped community looks like in practice. But you might object, because you might read that and think, Peter's divided the church into two categories of leaders and followers. And then it's only the latter category, only the followers who are expected to show some kind of humility and submit themselves. But what Peter says in the very next verse shows just how wrong that assumption is. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility was not an admired quality in the ancient world. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Aristotle claimed that humility is actually a vice. And it's one of the reasons that crucifixion was so repulsive to Roman people, because it it stripped you of all self-dignity and pride. It was humiliating. But Peter says that humility should be the characteristic attitude of every Christian. All of you, he says, 
leaders and followers alike, all of you should clothe yourselves with humility. This is how you should present yourselves to one another. That may remind you of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians when he writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If you're familiar with that verse, you may remember that when Paul says those words, he's explaining what it means to have the mind of Christ. Christ who gave up his glory and honor and who took on the form of a servant and humbled himself, Paul says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a community, in our relationship to one another, Christians are meant to follow this pattern in the way that we serve each other, in in the way that we deal with conflict with one another, in the way that we treat those who might have less money or less status than us. In all of our relations with one another, Christians should follow the way of the cross by clothing themselves, ourselves, with humility not insisting on our own interests, and counting others as more significant than ourselves. On that point, Peter and Paul could not agree more. Finally, in this final chapter of his letter, Peter commends the cross not just as a model for how Christians relate to one another, but also as a pattern for how they should respond to whatever suffering they might encounter with what I would like to call a cross-shaped hope. The theme of hope has been one of, if not the most prominent theme in this letter. It is hope, as we saw in chapter 1, that defines what it means to be a Christian. Christians are those, Peter said, who have been born again to a living hope. It's likewise hope that makes us strange. What makes us foreigners and exiles in our own homelands because we hope for a better country, for a life yet to come. Hope is also what will make us stand out to those around us. It's what Peter says in chapter 3, when what, we, what he says we should be ready to give an account of when people ask us what makes us different. He says that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that is in us. But the hope that Peter has in mind is very different from hope as we commonly think of it. When most people think of hope, they tend to equate it with optimism, with a, with a belief or a conviction that somehow, maybe because of our own hard work or, or maybe because of a change of circumstances or maybe just because of luck, but somehow or another, Things will turn out better in the end. That's often what we mean when we talk about being hopeful, being optimistic. But that's not the kind of hope that Jesus displayed in his death on the cross. Jesus didn't seem very optimistic when he was on the way to the cross. He kept telling his disciples that he would suffer and die, even when they rebuked him for it. He kept saying it. He was convinced that they would betray him. He didn't even try to defend himself. Or, or negotiate when he was brought before Pontius Pilate. He just accepted the suffering that came his way. And yet, he did continue to hope, even in his darkest moments, 
On the cross, as he was dying, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is often referred to as the cry of dereliction. And, and, it, and it sounds like the words of a man who has given himself over to despair. But even in this statement, there is evidence of hope. Because when Jesus says these words, he's actually quoting from a psalm, Psalm 22, which is the testimony of a, of a righteous sufferer. And that psalm isn't a psalm of despair. It actually ends very hopefully, recognizing, recognizing and look for, looking forward to the fact that God will ultimately vindicate his servant and that no matter what a person may suffer, that those who believe in God will ultimately be glorified. And that's the hope that Jesus displays on the cross. He wasn't optimistic that he would escape suffering or grief, but he was confident that his father would raise him from the dead. And that's exactly the sort of hope that Peter commends to us as well. Not a cheerful optimism that everything's going to turn out okay. In fact, Peter tells us to be ready to suffer and that the devil, our enemy, is out for our destruction. But he also encourages us to hope. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus in the way of the cross. So it sets Christians apart. Not simple optimism, not a belief that God will protect us from hardship, but an unshakable confidence that no matter what suffering or mockery or scorn we may face, that the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. As I was reflecting on this final chapter of Peter's letter, I was reminded of a prayer that we Anglicans pray on a regular basis. In fact, it's a prayer that's been assigned for every Friday during morning prayer. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. That prayer didn't exist when Peter wrote his letter. But if it had, I imagine that he would have commended it to us. Because that's exactly what he's commending in this final chapter of his letter. To embrace what is distinctive about our faith. To walk in the way of the cross. And as we do so, to discover that it is none other than the way of life and peace.